Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, uh, this morning we're continuing through the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in Mark seven fourteen through 23. And as you are doing that, I, I want to start with a story um, from uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was installing some flooring in my basement um, in the laundry room, and uh, it was not at all going the way that I was hoping it would. Um, and I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that, right? Uh, you've never experienced a moment where you're doing a house project and on paper it seems easy and, and just fine, um, and, and, and then it doesn't go well at all. Uh, am I the only one? I'm the only one. All right. Well, uh, minutes tick by, uh, and, uh, and, and things just don't get accomplished the, the way I, I want. My progress, it continues to stall, and you can imagine what my temper was like. And if you were to graph it out, uh, there would be this inverse correlation between the work that I had actually accomplished and, uh, uh, and my frustration levels, which are just starting to go through the roof. And, and so things aren't going well, and, and, and I know that I should have just stepped away, walked away, and called it a day. But of course, I wasn't going to do that, because that would admit, mean that I had to admit failure. More importantly, that means I would have to admit that the flooring had won. And so I decided to keep at it, and eventually I got so frustrated, I take this rubber mallet that I'm using, and using is probably too generous of a word because I hadn't actually used it, I hadn't accomplished anything, and I just said loudly, oh, come on, and then I threw the mallet on the ground and I walked away. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty lame at swearing, I, I get that, uh, but, but I throw it, and, and after that, I, I just said, all right, I'm done, and I, and I hop in the shower, and, and, and I begin to think, begin to think about it, and, and just having some distance from that situation, I reflect on that moment and I was just embarrassed. I was increasingly embarrassed because after a bit of a a reflection, I actually said out loud, man, where did that come from? That's not like me. Have you ever said or thought anything like that? After a, a particularly rough day, it seems that your coworkers or your family are just trying to push your buttons in any and every way, and, and you say something or you, you do something that you later regret, and you're left wondering, where on earth did that come from? That's not like me. Where do these less than admirable moments originate? What causes these outbursts? Are they things from without? Perhaps your family, they got together before you arrived home, before you entered the room, and they said with an evil laugh, all right, let's do everything that we can in our power to make sure that we make them upset. And maybe they actually do that. I, 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 could, I could see that for some of us. Or, or, or maybe if we would have just read the, the package on that flooring, then we would have said, uh, if we read it a little more carefully, we would have seen that it said, hey, hey warning, this product is, is known to contain a vindictive vinyl that enjoys inflicting frustration on people. Of course, this question of where did that come from doesn't just deal with those moments of outbursts, does it? It also uh, uh, refers to the brokenness and the wickedness that we see all over our world. What is wrong with our world? Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much strife between different nations and different races and different classes and people of different political opinions? Why do we see relationships so often break and get to the point where they are irreparable? Where on earth does all of this come from? In our text this morning, Jesus gives us an answer, and it's probably not an answer that we would really like. It's, it comes from our heart. 
You see, the problem when you blow up on your spouse or on your children is, is not ultimately your spouse or, or your children, it's your heart. When you spike that rubber mallet on the, on the floor out of frustration, it's not primarily the, the mallet's fault, it's your heart. And the problem with conflict between different nations isn't primarily external circumstances, it's your heart. Other things may play a part, they may be a factor, but they're not the root of the problem. The root of the problem, according to Jesus in our passage this morning, is your heart. Mark 7, 14 through 23, uh, all about Jesus and the heart. Our passage comes immediately after 7, 1 through 13, which is, you know, if, you're, if you can count, you, you realize that. It comes immediately on the, on the heels of this passage that's all about religious controversy between Jesus and these religious authorities in Jerusalem. And I want to just remind ourselves of the context of that moment from, from a couple weeks ago in 7, 1 through 13. About 600 years before Jesus walks the earth, God kicks the people of Israel out of the promised land because of their wickedness and because of their disobedience. And they're out of the promised land for about 70 years. And then after those 70 years, God allows them to return to their homes. And when they come back, there's this new mindset from the people of Israel where they say, okay, we cannot let that happen again. We cannot let that happen again. So we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that we remain faithful to make sure that we remain obedient to God. And so, 400 years before Jesus comes, the people of Israel say, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes for us to show how serious we are about keeping God's commandments. And we're going to start setting up some different fences around God's word to protect us from breaking God's word. So if we break the fence, if we break through the fence, we still haven't actually broken God's word. To use a modern day illustration we used a couple weeks ago, you can't break the speed limit of 55 if you commit yourself to only going 45. And that's what the people of Israel decide to do. And over the course of those 400 years, the the fences that they set up actually grew more and more and more elaborate, more and more ingrained in the mindset of the people of Israel. And they began to have this mindset of, okay, we know that God is holy, we know that God demands perfection, and we need to be like him. We need to be holy, we need to be perfect if we're ever going to enter into his presence. And so this system develops, a system of ritual cleansings and, and washings, and all of this is primarily tradition. Now, this might sound archaic to us uh, today because we don't have these ritual uh, traditions of cleansings and washings, but it actually makes a a good deal of sense if you just look at your own life and think back to a first date or think back to a job interview that you've had. What did you do before you went on that first date? Or what did you do before you went on that job interview? Did you just roll out of bed, forget to shower, forget to brush your teeth, put on yesterday's wrinkled clothes? Uh, Of course we don't do those things. We make an effort. If we're going to meet someone particularly important, we shower, we brush our teeth, we do something with our hair. And in in one sense, that's exactly the same thing that the people of Israel are doing in the first century. We get rid of our uncleanness when we come into the presence of someone who is important to us. And the people of Israel are doing the exact same thing. You don't want to smell bad. You don't want to have a stain or a wrinkle on you. And that's the cleanliness laws for the Jews in the first century. Unless you are clean, then you cannot enter into the presence of a perfect and holy God. See, the people of Israel were right. that There was this massive gap between where they were and where God was, but then they also made a massive mistake. 
They assumed that that massive gap was actually something that, that, that they could take care of by themselves, that they by themselves could make themselves presentable to God with outside-in actions. They assumed that by cleansing the outside, then they would be presentable to God on the inside. They completely ignored the heart. Last week, in our, or a couple weeks ago in our passage uh, in Mark, we, we saw that Jesus addresses this situation head on, and he quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from Isaiah, and says that this, this problem with the, the way that they, they look at things is a mindset. It says this, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What is it that Jesus says? Well, he says, in all of your pursuit of being right before God, you have forgotten all about the heart. And so this morning's passage addresses this massive hole and this approach in the first century. But it also, it also addresses a massive hole in our tendencies today as well. Let me explain that. If you ask anyone, whether they're a Christian or not, whether there is evil in this world, they're, of course, going to say Yes, and if you ask anyone, Christian or not, whether they themselves have done something wrong, or maybe not say done something evil, but if, if they've done something wrong, and they will, if they're honest, eventually say, yes, I, I have, I, I am not perfect. We all recognize that there is this gap between us and perfection, and all of us spend a significant amount of energy in our lives trying to make up that gap. And almost every single way that we spend energy trying to make up that gap completely ignores the heart. Let me just give you one, one example. Moral living, trying to live a good life, can actually be a, a way, even if it has the veneer of religiosity, can actually be a way where we try to make up that gap between us and God. There is this belief out there that we can also oftentimes uh, default to that says, if I do enough right, then that's going to outweigh the bad that I've done. If I'm nice to others, if I think of others, if I've done enough to make, uh, if I volunteer occasionally, if, if I've done enough good, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I pray, if I do this enough, then that's going to make up the gap between me and God. There's just one problem with this view. It doesn't address the heart. It's completely external. Just like the religious leaders in the first century, all of it is just focused on our actions. Pastors can do the exact same thing. All of us are, are uh, susceptible to this. Over the course of this past year, uh, I've been reading this uh, devotional for pastors called the, um, the Preacher's Catechism, and it's focusing just on the importance of, of preaching for the pastor as well as uh, on, on our great need to hear the gospel. And, and I want to read to you this excerpt that I read this past week. Somewhere and somehow, we oftentimes start to trust in our own sermons. At, t at some point, we begin to, to believe that because we are preachers, we could stand confident in ourselves before God, that we actually had something to offer to him. Justification through proclamation, if you will. Even the holy calling of proclaiming God's word, if we trust in it, becomes a broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leads on it, as Isaiah says. Preaching rarely bears the weight of our expectations. It certainly never bears the weight of our redemption. You see, good things, living a, a good life, good things like ministry and preaching, if we are not careful, can be twisted by us 
to, to see, or, or we begin to see them as the answer to our own uncleanness. But preaching, right living, success, morality, politics, none of these things, thousands of things, cannot bear the weight of our need to be clean before God because each and every one of them is an external solution to what is, according to Jesus, an internal problem. So if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to open up to this short passage, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. It's a very straightforward text. It breaks into two parts, the parable, of the cro- the parable with the crowd and the explanation with the disciples. So uh, please follow along as I start uh, in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, it may strike you as odd that in verse 17 of this text, Mark calls this a parable. After all, Parables, when we think of parables, they're actually stories, right? And this isn't much of a story. This is just a statement, a a line, a verse of of teaching from Jesus. So why is it called a parable here? Well, back in February, as we were going through the Gospel of Mark, we were in Mark chapter 4, and uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, talk about the purpose of parables. And what we see in Mark 4, verses 10 through 12, is, is this. And when he, Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him, about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Remember the context of Mark, if you've been with us. Remember how popular Jesus is. He's been attracting people from from all over the region, so much so that actually Mark tells us that Jesus doesn't have the, the opportunity to even sleep or even eat. Why are all these people coming to Jesus? Is it because he's an incredible preacher? No, the, the primary reason is given to us in Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed them from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that All who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Mark tells us that the reason people are running to Jesus, flocking to him, is not because of his teaching on how to be saved. It's not because of his message on the kingdom. It's because he's a miracle worker. It's because he is the one who can do all of these fantastic things. And all these people are coming to Jesus, but they're only marginally interested in him. They're only interested in him as how much they can be entertained by him or they can see something miraculous from him. And so Jesus decides that he's going to start teaching in parables. And he's going to use these parables as a litmus test to see who is truly his follower. And so he teaches in a parable, and he does so publicly, but then he explains privately. He teaches publicly, explains privately. Now anyone is able to stick around and hear that explanation in in private. But to do so, they actually have to choose to seek Jesus. You see, Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want passive followers. He doesn't want fickle crowds. 
And Jesus uses these parables as a way to reveal who is really his disciple, who is really actually seeking after him, who is actually really willing to pursue him and not just pursue what he can do for them. So come back to Mark 7. Why is it that Mark refers to this statement as a parable? Well, in a general definition, it's not a parable. But in the context here, Mark says this is a parable because it's serving the exact same purpose of what we've seen from his parables. This is a litmus test. It's a test, or maybe even a better way of saying that. It's an invitation to the crowds to actually seek Jesus, to actually pursue Jesus, to become his disciple, to not remain on the fence. Jesus desperately wants these people to come and to hear the truth of the kingdom, to become his disciples, and to be saved. And he wants the same thing for us today as well. And so he teaches in parables. Notice that this is the urgency that we see in Mark 7, 14, where he starts, when he's talking to the crowds, he says, hear me and understand. There's urgency here and earnestness that this crowd wouldn't just dissipate the moment that this conflict between him and the religious leaders comes to an end, but they they would actually take what Jesus is saying and they they would cling to it. That this message would would sink deep into their hearts and Jesus would actually become their Lord. Jesus is saying to them, please, please don't let this bounce off your hearts like hard soil. Let what I'm saying to you sink deep into your hearts and bear the fruit of the gospel. And Jesus, he pleads with these people that that he's sharing this teaching with them and then after he shares the teaching, that's, that's it. And to imagine, the, the, or to use the, the language of the parable of the sower again, the seed has been cast, and now Jesus wants to see who will respond. So verse 17. But before we do that, I want to just say four or five sentences on verse 16, which if you look at your Bible, isn't there. So where on earth is, is verse 16? Well, uh, each Sunday, you'll notice that we throw up on the screens, and there's a link in your bulletin on, on access to our sermon notes. And as always, those are completely optional. You're not missing out if you don't actually uh, use those. But this week, I, I wrestle with this question of where verse 16 is uh, for two reasons. First, because we don't have time to do it this morning. And, and second, uh, and more importantly, I don't want us to lose focus on the main point here. And that, that's not for us to, to dive into this academic study of text criticism. So if you don't have your phone with you, just bring your bulletin home, and you can look that link up online afterward on your computer if you want to. It's, it's a pretty long thing that I've written, so actually, uh, even if you have your phone in here, don't look it up right now, because it's not the main focus here this morning. So um, that, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, it's probably like seven or eight sentences for you. Um, Mark 7, uh, verse 17. And when he, Jesus, had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked them, or asked him about the parable. Now, as we would expect, Jesus' explanation takes place later. It takes place in private with those who are called his disciples. And remember, in Mark, this word disciples doesn't just refer to the twelve. It refers to anyone who wants to follow Jesus, not just the twelve. It's an open group. Anyone is invited to be Jesus' disciple. And this invitation is extended in a few verses earlier, verses 14 and 15. And those who choose to pursue Jesus... Rather than just harden their hearts, now they have the opportunity to hear this explanation. So Jesus' explanation here, the rest of the passage, takes place in two parts. First, he explains what cannot defile us, and then he explains what 
does defile us. So let's look at the first, uh, starting in verse 18. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So here Jesus is telling his disciples that, that nothing that enters their bodies, nothing from the outside will ever make them unclean before God. Now if you have even just a cursory understanding of human anatomy, you know this is, this is true. The food that you eat doesn't enter into your soul. The hearts, and, and it's used here in the spiritual sense, not in the literal physical sense, the, the heart is not a part of your digestive system. And so Jesus literally just says, hey, whatever you eat, whatever goes into you from the outside, it cannot defile you because it, it enters not your heart, but it enters your mouth and then your stomach and then it goes out into the toilet. And if the, the problem of our cleanness before God is a matter of the heart, and we're going to see, see that here in a, in a few moments, the good news from these verses is that nothing that you do on the outside is going to make you unclean before God. Nothing like choosing to, to wash your hands or not wash your hands, according to all these different religious traditions, is not going to make you unclean before God. Not eating or, or eating certain things is not going to make you unclean before God. Being near a dead body, whether it's an animal or a human, is not going to make you unclean before God. These ceremonial purity laws in the Old Testament they're never going to make you unholy before God. That's, that's good news if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It's radical news, which is why we get this parenthetical comment from Mark here where he says, uh, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Before Jesus, people of God had to observe a very strict diet. There was no shellfish, no pork, and the list goes on and on and on. And that's no longer the case now because of Jesus' declaration here. What, does, what matters is not what enters your body, but what matters is what comes out of it. What matters is what comes out of your heart. And that's what we see here in the second half of this passage, starting in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these th evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says it is not what you put into your body or, or more broadly it is not external things that, that make us unclean before God. What's the issue? Well, it's what comes from within. What leads to all these sudden outbursts? What causes all this enmity and strife and hatred in the world? Well, Jesus tells us it's the heart. And Jesus lists a number of, of sins here, a number of things that come from the heart. He lists both public and private things that come from within. And a number of these are taken directly from the Ten Commandments. And, and by doing that, he's showing that Jesus isn't saying, all right, it's, it's the Old Testament versus me. You say, no, the, the entire purpose of the Old Testament, the entire purpose of the law was about the heart in the first place. The heart is a, a wellspring of evil. It produces evil deeds, things like sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery and slander. It also produces these evil desires, things like coveting 
and wickedness, envy and pride. And Jesus doesn't give any quarter to wickedness. He says it all comes from the heart. And see, here's what we see here. I said just a few moments ago, in the first half of this explanation, this, this first half where it says nothing on the outside can defile us, I said that's, that's really good news. Nothing that you eat, nothing that you do on the outside is ever going to make you unclean before God. Not observing or not observing religious tradition, it's not going to make you unclean before God. That, that prepares us for this radical invitation to all people to come into the kingdom of God. But at the same time that the first half of this is really good news, we get here to the, the second half. It's terrifying news. This is absolutely terrifying news. All people are welcome. But no one is worthy. You see, that's the implication from this passage. If, if all evil comes from within, all evil comes from your heart, when I lose my temper in my basement, it's, it's not something on the outside. This question, where did that come from? That's not me. The, the answer is, that's the true you, Jordan. When, when you get into to this moment where you just lose your cool with your family or your coworkers, and you say, where did that come from? The, it, it's only answered with, from within. That, that's the true you. And when you get to this point where you do something you know that you shouldn't, even if it's a moment of weakness, the, the answer is, well, that's, that's actually you. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And by implication, out of the overflow of the heart, the hands and the body act as well. You see, in all honesty, this passage is terrifying. It would be so much easier for us if Jesus said, the religious leaders are right. Listen to them. If you want to be right before God, all you have to do is just observe all of these traditions of the elders. Because that's quantifiable. That's, that's doable. That's something that I can do. If all I have to do to be right before God is just wash my hands in a ritual before every single meal and not eat bacon, I, I can attain that. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at every single one of us and says that we are simultaneously completely unable to cleanse ourselves and desperately in need of being cleansed. External things aren't going to be able to, to deal with the issue in your heart. Jordan, preaching a, a good sermon is not good enough to save your soul. You are in desperate need to be clean before God. And I think that's the thrust of this passage. It's really just summed up with a question. If holiness is a matter of the heart, how can we possibly make ourselves clean? If holiness is a matter of your heart, how can you possibly make yourself clean before God? And that's what Jesus is arguing here. Holiness is a matter of the heart. And, and the question, how on earth are you going to deal with that on your own? See, later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uses this hyperbole to tell us about the great lengths that we are supposed to go to in order to remove the source of sin in our lives. All those evil thoughts, all those evil desires, all those actions. 
how we're supposed to remove them from our lives. Mark chapter 9. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Tim Keller, a a former pastor in, in New York, describes the urgency of this passage this way. He says it this, like this. Sinful behavior, the reference to the hand and the foot, and sinful desires, the reference to the eye, are like a fire that has broken out in your living room. Let's say a cushion on your couch has ignited. You can't just sit there and say, well, the whole house isn't burning. It's just a cushion. If you don't do something immediately and decisively about that cushion, the whole house will be engulfed. Fire is never satisfied. It can't be allowed to smolder. It can't be contained to a corner. It will overtake you eventually. And sin is the exact same way. It never stays in its place. So here's Jesus, and he's saying, deal with the source of sin immediately and in the most serious way that you can imagine. But there's just one problem here, the source of sin. You see, if the the source of sin were actually our hand or our eye or our foot, if, if that were the case, if they were the things that make us unclean before God, then it would be drastic, but the, the solution would be attainable. You would just cut off your, your hand or your, your, your foot or, or pull out your eye and throw them in the fire. Drastic. But at least your whole body is preserved. But Jesus says, though, that's not the problem. The problem isn't your hand. The problem isn't your eye. The problem isn't your foot. It's your heart. You can't just cut out your heart. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no external solution will ever deal with your soul. That's why this passage begs this question. If holiness is a matter of the heart, how can we possibly make ourselves clean? The beginning of an answer is found in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3. There's a sermon from Zechariah 3 uh, by um, a man um, who's since passed away. His name is Ray Dillard, and it speaks to this. Zechariah 3 uh, tells us of this vision that the prophet Zechariah has of the high priest. His name is Joshua. On the the Day of Atonement, which was the holiest day of uh, the calendar for the Jewish people. And the chapter begins this way, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And let me explain that. The Jewish temple had many different areas that were um, basically um, restricted based off of who you were. There was an outer court, and there was an inner court, and then there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was surrounded by this very thick veil. It was the place where God himself was said to dwell on earth. And it was a very dangerous place because God himself appeared there. And so there were a number of different laws and restrictions that were placed uh, on this place by God for the people of Israel so that they wouldn't die when they enter into the very presence of God. This place is, is so holy that only one person is actually ever able or allowed to enter it, and that is the high priest. And, and it's so holy that, that he can do it, but he can only do it once a year on this day of atonement. So here is Zechariah, 
And he has this vision of the high priest Joshua standing in the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement. The only time where he would actually be standing in the presence of God. And in this sermon, Ray Dillard, he, he describes the amount of preparation the high priest went through in order to, to be ready for this moment. And the week before that holiest day of the year, he would begin to be isolated from everyone. He would have no interaction with people. He, he, that way he wouldn't accidentally touch something or, or eat something that would make him unclean. And for that entire week, he would spend the entire time just preparing his heart, cleansing his, his body as well with, with water. And the night before the Day of Atonement, the night before this holiest moment when he would encounter God, he would stay up all night and he would pray. He would read scripture as a way to purify himself. And then when you get to the Day of Atonement and he would thoroughly wash his entire body, and then he would dress himself in a pure white linen. And then he would go into the, the holy of holies. And he would offer an animal as a sacrifice for his own sin. And then he would come back out. And he'd wash his entire body again. And he'd get dressed in a new pure white linen. And he'd go back into the holy of holies. And then he'd offer another animal as a sacrifice. This time for the sins of the priests. And then he would come back out again. And he would wash his body again, and he would get clothed again in new white linen, this time never worn before. And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies one last time, and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. Now, one of the things that we don't immediately see is that all of this preparation on the Day of Atonement, it was done in public. People would flock to the temple to watch the priest prepare himself. There was this thin screen behind which he would get dressed and he would wash himself. But everyone would be watching and cheering on and waiting to see their high priest, their, their intercessor, their representative before God prepare himself for this moment. And they wanted to make sure he was doing it the right way, that he was actually prepared, he was actually pure, because they were, they were counting on him. He was the one who was going before God for them. And when this high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, there wasn't a speck on him. He was the purest that he could possibly be, that anyone could possibly be. And then we get to Zechariah 3, verse 3. And it says this. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Here is Zechariah, and he sees Joshua the high priest, this representative of the people before God, standing before God after all this preparation, all this cleansing, all of this ritual, all this work to make himself pure, and he's covered, in, and literally he's covered in garments that are covered in excrement. And the, the, the focus of this passage is that this man who has spent all this time preparing himself is completely defiled, He's completely unclean. He's completely unworthy. You say, well, what on earth is going on here? I think it's clear that God is giving Zechariah this prophetic vision so that he would see the desperate state of our hearts before God. 
That in spite of all of our efforts to be clean, and in spite of all of our efforts to, to be good, to, to be pure, to be moral, to cleanse ourselves, God sees our hearts. And our hearts are full of filth. If holiness is a matter of the heart, how can we possibly make ourselves clean before an infinitely holy God? And the answer begins in Zechariah 3. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, behold, I will bring my servant the branch, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God tells Joshua, Joshua, he tells Zechariah, that even though he is defiled, even though he can't do anything about it, God himself will one day take care of it. How? Centuries later, another Joshua showed up, another Jeshua. I don't know if you realize this, but the name Joshua, Jeshua, Jesus, they're all the same name just in different languages. So centuries later, another Joshua shows up, and a week before what would become the holiest day of all time, Jesus begins to prepare by entering into Jerusalem. And the night before that holiest day of all time, he did not go to sleep. And I just want to read to you the rest of this for you. And when he, Jesus, stood before God, Instead of receiving words of encouragement, the Father forsook him. Instead of being clothed in rich garments, he was stripped of the only garment he had. He was beaten and was killed naked. He was bathed as well, but in human spit. Why? Well, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God clothed Jesus in our sin. He took our penalty, our punishment, so that we, like Joshua the high priest, can get what Revelation, 17, or Revelation 19 tells us. Let us rejoice and be glad. Fine linen, bright and clean, is given to us to wear. Pure linen, perfectly clean, without stain or blemish. If holiness is a matter of of the heart. How can we possibly make ourselves clean? And the passage that we just looked at reveals this sobering reality that we are in desperate need to cleanse ourselves before God and we are completely unable to do it. Nothing we could ever do will cut it. This is terrifying news, but it is also the beginning of the most beautiful, most incredible, most glorious news of all. His perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient son is the only one who can stand before a holy God, and he clothes himself in our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. How is it that we, defiled people, can stand before a holy God? Well, just here in a few moments, we're going to sing a song where we confess our confidence 
in the only way. It's not because of what we can do, but it's because before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. Father, we are in such desperate need for someone to come and take away all of our sin, all of our impurity, because it is abundantly clear to us that we cannot do it on our own. And so we say thank you for sending your son to do just that. Thank you for sending your son that he who had no sin took our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, I pray that we would never lose our sights on the incredible gift of the Son, the incredible beauty and mercy of what he has done for us. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.